Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and a happy holiday weekend to you. If it's heavenly or herbaceous, grilled or glazed, juicy or julienned, marinated or mouthwatering in the least, if it's edible, you will hear about it on this show. You've tuned in to the hippest, the hottest, the coolest culinary conversation on the radio because a meal is a terrible thing to waste, don't you think? The culinary landscape is ever-evolving, and on this show, you'll hear from chefs and pastry aficionados, restaurateurs, molecular gastronomers, food bloggers and enthusiasts, authors, wine geeks, and more. We dish on fabulous food, wine and spirits, travel, health, and living the best life. So I hope you won't miss a weekend of delicious conversation with me. But if you do, please note that podcasts are posted on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And because fresh strawberries are perfuming the markets and in June next month, just a few days away, we will live the good life in a bowl of cherries, literally. Corn and tomatoes will get sweeter. Uh, Your neighbor will force zucchini on you that has overtaken their garden. Oh, yes. This holiday weekend marks the start of summer. So fire up your barbecue and stay tuned because I have grand guests and fabulous food in your radio. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and you'll find my daily dish on social at chefjamiegwen. Let's talk fried chicken to kick off this show, shall we? Because when you say summer, I say fried chicken. And summer is really a few weeks away, albeit, yes, I know, the Memorial Day weekend does mark the start of grilling season. But we have to make room for summer fried chicken, the most perfect picnic feast, in my opinion. Now, you've heard the buzz about Carla Hall's fried chicken recipe for some time now, and Michael Chang's fast casual offshoot of Momofuku, the restaurant called Fuku in New York City that sells only a chicken sandwich. Well, this conversation is not at all about fried chicken, really, albeit in the weeks to come, I will share with you my best tips. But the one thing that fried chicken and those two mentions that I made have in common at the heart of it all is pickle brine. Oh, yes, you heard me right. Pickle brine. And so before the start of the summer where you start cracking jars of pickles for your hamburger and hot dog bevy buffet... Don't pour the leftover juice down the drain when you have a tasty jar of pickles. Instead, consider saving it and using it. So pickle juice, aka brine, is a mixture of water, salt, and spices. And some of the fancier varieties have pickled garlic or hot peppers or even horseradish, which I love. But the pickle juice itself is especially useful in lots of dishes and cocktails. It may sound funny to you, but it's actually one of the key ingredients in a perfect Bloody Mary 
or in a dirty martini. And you should always taste the brine first so that you know what flavors you're introducing to the mix. But uh, you have to know that that pickle brine or pickle juice is going to come in really handy for fabulous flavor, rather, this summer. I get tongue-tied when I think about it. Here's the best tip I can share with you. You can freeze the pickle juice left in a pickle jar in an ice cube tray and then use it as you see fit when necessary. Uh, After you've dug out the last spear of the pickle jar, you repurpose the brine to something useful or tasty. And it gives new life to so many things. So I mentioned the Bloody Mary. How about adding it to a salad dressing where you replace half the vinegar and it is, I will say, just bright with fabulous flavor. Then of course, there is the ultimate potato salad. You want to punch it up? Oh yes, you add some of that pickle juice. Now you can also reuse the pickle juice to quick pickle more things like cucumbers or summer squash or radishes or onions or even hard-boiled eggs. You might not have thought of that. And then, of course, I suggest that you use it in a marinade because the acid in the pickle juice helps to tenderize meat. Like try pickle brining pork chops for juiciness or use it as a baster like in a mister, a spray bottle for great grilled meats. That's another uh, wonderful application for pickle brine. It's actually really useful around the house as well. Waste not, want not. I know you're thinking twice about me at the moment and cocking your head to the right, but it's true. Wait till you hear what great cooks and those who love to entertain, keep their house clean and take a holistic approach do with pickle brine. So it's a great cleaning agent and the copper pans that are starting to rust, well, they will be sparkling clean when you clean them with pickle juice. It also works really well as a grill cleaner. It makes the charred bits come off much easier. And in the garden, the high vinegar and salt content of pickle juice makes it a great all-natural weed killer. And by the way, here's the bonus. It's pet friendly. And then there are some plants like hydrangeas, which I love, that need an acidic soil. So you pour the pickle juice into the soil around a hydrangea plant um, or into the compost pile. And once a season or so, I will say it makes a huge difference because I have tried it. And finally, there are some that keep pickle brine or pickle juice from the jar in the medicine cabinet. It is considered a holistic heartburn cure, a few sips of pickle juice that is, because it helps balance the pH in your stomach, which calms acid reflux. Um, It's supposed to treat tummy problems as well. And people claim that it is the number one cure for hiccups. Yes, just a few sips of that pickle brine. And seeing that it works so well on everything else, I'm actually inclined to believe it. So when you try it, let me know. Yes, there are really beautiful virtues to pickle juice. And the next time you open a jar, I guarantee you will think of me. I'd love to know what you're doing with your pickle juice or a pickle brine. So email me directly, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com so that we can dish, please. And then, of course, it is time for food news today. This is news you can use because do you cold brew? Well, I do. And as the 
summer months come into play and as the weather gets warmer, I am all about my iced coffee. And so I took to testing some cold brew coffee makers. I have to say I'm buzzing around all day, but it is the smoothest, richest tasting coffee I've had and I love it. And there's something to be said for cold brew at home. Um, So this is news that you can use because I've done the homework. My favorite of the bevy of cold brew coffee makers that are available on the market is the KitchenAid offering because I think that they've mastered a few things brilliantly. So if you're investing in a cold brew coffee maker, listen here. KitchenAid is releasing later this year a larger sized cold brew coffee maker, which I believe will be the largest available. And if you drink it like I do, or you want to store it in the fridge, which the KitchenAid model does brilliantly, and I'll tell you why in just a moment, then you're going to want this larger capacity. It stores the coffee for, I've kept it almost two weeks now, and I have to tell you, it still tastes delicious. And so I'll be the first to buy this larger sized cold brew coffee maker. But of all of the cold brew makers that I've tried, the KitchenAid is the best in design and flavor profile. So it's square shaped and it fits in my fridge right against the side wall there. And I love that it's not round or cylindrical and it's not all glass. So I feel that it's safer as well. Um, It's super easy to use. You simply fill it with coarsely ground coffee and cold water, and then you steep, and then you you sip. And it fits on this fabulous stand, which raises it up, making it pourable from the spout that is in its spot in my fridge. Or I've put it on the counter when I set it out for brunch. And it's made of stainless steel with a glass uh, maker, uh, you know, insert that sits atop that uh, stand itself. And the steeper is stainless. So it's reusable over and over. Plus it's super easy to clean and cold brew on tap is amazing. So if you have the kitchen aid cold brew coffee maker, um, and you want to weigh in on which one you have, you use, you love, uh, let me know and cheers to cold brew all summer long, because I will no doubt be serving it up. And yes, you're invited over, of course. Okay, do not touch your dial. Have you ever wondered how to taste? There is a science behind it. And Becky Selengut is here to share. So don't touch your dial. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen, and there's lots more delicious conversation coming up. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's eating and drinking like you've never done before. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The term season to taste, does that phrase drive you batty? Well, Becky Selengut has a solution. By the way, it drives her and her food-loving chef friends and you and me crazy too. How to Taste, just released, is a culinary education that outlines the underlying principles of taste, and it's an insightful read full of science and practical lessons and sheer wit. 
and I am delighted to dish about it. When she's not squid jigging, fishing, or foraging for her next meal, Becky Selingut is a private chef, author, humorist, and culinary instructor. You heard her on the show last month sharing good fish, and she's back, and we're learning how to taste. You know, you talk about there are good cooks and bad cooks, right? You either know if you're great or you're not, or sometimes you don't know. But we can all be better if we learned how to taste. Yeah. Yes. And, and just, just, you know, real simply, taste, taste is scientifically what you experience in your mouth. So what you kind of learned a little bit as a kid, the salty, the sweet, the bitter, and then some things you may not have yet learned because science has just discovered receptor cells for them, and that's the umami, which is a savory sense of flavor, and um, fat they discovered receptor cells for. And then, so that's what, all that you experience in your mouth is taste. And then science looks at flavor as a more kind of umbrella term that covers taste plus smells plus memory. And the memory part is important because if I give you, blindfold you and gave you a bite of um, a raspberry and you had never had raspberry before, you would be able to describe the flavor by using other similar things, but you would never be able to say raspberry because it would be unfamiliar to you. So um, the smell, the flavor, the memory, plus everything going on in your mouth, that equals the total flavor of food. And knowing that actually can help you learn to be a better taster. Okay, so in order to become a better taster, we must determine our taste receptors. You use that word, and I think it's important to define because everyone's taste receptors differ from each other, right? And does the quality of your taste receptor make you a super taster? It's not the quality, it's about the density, and that's a genetically set thing. So yes. 25% of the population are, are colloquially known as super tasters, but it's more accurate, I think, to um, call them sensitive tasters, uh, because they, they have a greater density of taste buds, and therefore receptor cells, which live in the buds, and they basically... Um, it's kind of like your tongue was slightly autistic. You're just getting overwhelmed by stimulation all the time. And um, my wife is a super taster. It's a sensitive taster. She doesn't like a lot of foods. A lot of things are really overwhelming for her. Hmm. And uh, on the other side of, of uh, the bell curve of your taster status or what kind of a taster you are, are the tolerant tasters. That's 25% of the population as well. So one out of four people are... Uh, the people that you always see at your dinner table putting more salt and hot sauce on their food. Right. And they're not picky, but they always need to doctor their food and make it more intense. That is, they have a, the lowest density of taste buds on their tongues. And so basically when they're eating a bite of food, the food might literally be missing some um, signaling to the brain. So they're, they are eating the same food and they're putting it in their mouth just like you're putting it in your mouth, but you're getting all this more information about it. So it's like a, it's like almost like learning a language. Someone's that learning Japanese, they only know first year Japanese. They're going to be missing a lot of it. Someone who's fluent in Japanese is going to be getting all of it. Of course. So that leads me to ask you: Do you cook more subtly for April than you would, let's say, for me? With someone, are you? You're probably an average taster. I would suspect so. Yes, because I run the gamut. I mean, sometimes I crave spicy, and I I want some heat, and and I want it to ignite. And sometimes I like mellow, subtle, lovely cauliflower soup flavors that are all warm and soft and pretty. Uh, so yes, I, I I suppose that's a terrible revelation. I'm average. No, it's not a terrible revelation. In fact, most chefs are. 
Interesting. Um, who, who love food are average tasters. And 50% of the population, you want to be an average taster. Then, yes, you I'm average. Yes. Proud to be. Yes. Proud to be. to be average. Okay. Yeah. And that basically means that, you know, maybe you liked coffee when you were, maybe you didn't like coffee when you were growing up, but you had sugar and cream in it as you aged, and then maybe you've been able to wean off the sugar as you got older. Perhaps um, you didn't like beer at first, but, but now you do, but you don't really like the super, super bitter hoppy beers. Is that... Does that seem like you? Have you been in my house? Yeah. So that's just an <laughs> average taster. And that you like pretty much all foods, but, you know, you, you have to have certain vegetables cooked properly. You're not going to sit there and eat a boiled Brussels sprout. You're not going to put a, a salad of just dandelion and radicchio. You're going to want to have some balance of things. And, you know, so you're not picky, but you do like things to be prepared correctly. Yes, These but are very particular. Tip, typical typical uh, things that average tasters experience in their palate. How interesting. Um, it's a good thing. Yes, so, it is a good yeah, we thing. Wanted, yeah, we want to be average tasters. Um, so I forget what your question was. When you cook, got, when you cook for April, do oh, you yeah, cook yeah, for yeah. a super taster? Yeah. So it's made me a better cook because it's not so much that she truly hates everything. It's that everything needs to be perfectly in balance for her because she's extra sensitive to bitterness and acidity. And so uh, the other thing that is necessary for cooking for her is that um, I should not judge her when she puts a lot of salt on my food because mm. what is she, she is doing naturally and now with, with knowledge because we learned, you know, as, as we were, I was researching the book, we sort of learned this together, salt is the best suppressant of bitterness that you can possibly use. It's even better than sugar, which is just really more of a distract, distractor to bitterness. Um, salt literally erases bitterness, which is why when I'm offered a, super hoppy IPA at a friend's house and they don't have any other kind of beer, I take it graciously and then I, you know, turn my back to the host and I put a little pinch of salt into the neck of the bottle and it erases half of that bitterness for me and I'm able to enjoy it. So I give her more salt at the table. She uses it. It doesn't offend me because she's just trying to make uh, the bitterness go away and she's trying to naturally turn up the sweetness in the dish. Right. She's creating her own balance. She's creating her own balance by, by... what is to me completely oversalting the food. And I couldn't, I can't eat her food. It's way too salty for me. Okay, so let's talk about that. Salt. Mm-hmm. We know the importance of salt in great food, in my opinion, and that it is all about balance. But you have uh, a way to fix both the quandary of too much and too little. When you've oversalted your food, there's, you know, there's different fixes. And, yes. and what I'm trying to do in this book is basically give people not only a prioritization of how they should attack problems when you're at that panicky part where there's you know, 15 minutes and someone's coming over and they're like, oh my God, I completely oversalted this dish, now what? Giving them sort of a prioritization of how to fix it. And for salt, um, the easiest thing to do to fix a, an oversalted problem would be to add a little bit more acidity because acid and salt play really nice with each other. Think of a margarita. Mm. Um, the salt helps make that acid not too puckery. And it's, it sort of it distracts you a little bit. If you, you add the acid and you still feel like it's way oversalted, well, then you need to use bulk. And bulk means you need to add more of a bland ingredient to um, make the salt to have to cover a greater surface area. That's what I call the potato fix. Right, without literally using a potato, because that actually turns out doesn't really isn't really the easiest way to help. What's best is like if you oversalt your guacamole, let's say, okay. and you've tried adding a little bit more lime to suppress the, the salt and it still 
ends up being a little too salty for you and you don't want to add any more lime flavor, then you just put in another half of an avocado. Becky, if you would please pause there. We'll take a quick break. More on how to taste right after this. Back and we're dishing Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio this holiday weekend, along with author Becky Sellingut. We're talking about how to taste, and it's a fascinating conversation. I believe that acidity is your friend. Absolutely. It's the number, I think it's the second most important thing to making food really good. And uh, I always joke with people that uh, people will, will add, uh, let's say, they take a, a bad recipe off the internet. They add the required little tiny bit of salt. Then they taste it. They t- it tastes really boring and bland, so they add a little bit more salt. It's still boring and bland. Well, then they jump down uh, from, from salt and acid, the two most important things to make your food good, and they go right to cumin hmm. or uh, chilies mm-hmm. or garlic. Mm-hmm. And these things, in, in my mind, aromatics, uh, chilies are, or garlic are in the category of called bite, things that kind of assault your palate in a, in a good or bad way, depending. Um, that those are very low on the, on the list to solve a, the main problems in food. So once you solve for salt, you should then think acid, because acid is the second, in my opinion, the second most important thing that, that most chefs know about and, and, and use heavily, and most home cooks just kind of skirt right over. So... We talk about that a lot, and we talk about how uh, 10 years I was in the restaurant business, I never heard a chef yell at line cooks, there's a, there's a, a lack of saffron in this dish, right. and I'm really mad. Not you enough know, cumin, right. There's not enough cumin in this dish, and, 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 and you're fired. I mean, it's always, always what was being bandied about was more salt, less salt. Uh, it needs uh, some lift. It needs some energy. Add some right. lemon. Add some vinegar. Yes. And then after that, you get into... Um, it needs more fat. There's not enough texture here. It needs, there's too much bitterness. Deal with that. These are all the things that, that would be communicated, all the basic taste. And so while the aromatics, the whole world of herbs and spices, of which you can't get great food without those, you can't get even basic good food if you focus on the aromatics without, to the exclusion of the basic taste. Yeah, so salt and then acid. I tell a, a story. I had the privilege of spending some time in uh, a Charlie Palmer kitchen. And I I watched him, Becky, with a half of an or uh, half of a lemon, rather, excuse me, on the line expediting. And every dish that came over from his line cooks, and most of them from the women on the line were uh, acidically balanced, he would say. But it was interesting to see that he would add a drop or two of lemon juice to many of the dishes that he inherently knew were not high enough in acid to add that bright sort of je ne sais quoi, the finish that you can't put your finger on, but man, is that good kind of taste. And I've always been a lemon lover, but it really enlightened me and elevated my cooking to, uh, this was a lot of years ago, to 
focus on acid. And I have a very acidic palate. So Chinese black vinegar is my best mm. friend. It's and a great ingredient. It is. And I always have citrus on hand because mm-hmm. I think that that acid is what can make or break a dish. A lot of people in my classes, when I teach, I teach how to taste classes, and I have for the last five years, people have a hard time. They're like, well, how do you know it, it needs acid? And so what I've, what I've learned is that if you ask people to put their hands somewhere when they take a bite of food, either down by their knees to represent the earth and heaviness and um, rootedness, or, or up in the air by their head to symbolize the sun and brightness, Hmm. Uh, and by their waist for somewhere in between. If you give someone like a typical Midwestern beef stew that has beef, potatoes, carrots, and onions and not much else, and you ask them, well, where do you put your hands to describe the energy level of the dish? Everyone in my class intuitively puts their hands by their knees, where the cows are grazing, where the potatoes are growing, where the carrots come out of the ground. They know that that's a low feeling. So how do you raise the energy of a Midwestern beef stew? Well, if you're French, you dump the bottle of wine. Red wine, that's right. Or you drink it with a beer or a glass of wine, and that puts the whole eating experience into the mid part of your balancing zone. So when when I'm doing this class and I give someone something and I have purposefully unacidified it, I have not added the vinegar yet, I have not added the citrus, I, they say, huh, it feels like it needs something. And I'm like, okay, well, you, we already taught them how to solve for salt. So now put your hands somewhere. Well, they put their hands below their waist. I'm like, you have the answer right there. It, That's needs, it needs a lift. So fascinating. some of this stuff is, is in our bodies already. We just didn't really know sure. how to access the decoder ring. And that's... That's kind of, I, I basically watch myself like a zoo animal. Like, what are, what are the things that I'm doing that make me know that this is the problem? Brilliant. What are the sounds I make? What are, mm. what, you know, like, it, what, what, Jamie, what, do you, what sound do you make when something's delicious? Mm. Right? Now, all your listeners should have made that same sound because it's almost universal. So when you make the mmm sound and there's a question mark at the end of it, mmm, with a question mark, that's when you need to stop adding things to that dish, take a little bit out. And my suggestion, add a pinch of salt to that, stir it up, and taste it. And if you get so to five smart. M's with yeah. no question mark, hmm. you've solved for salt. Because that's the number one problem in most people's food, is that they quick, too quickly move on from um, salt to something else. And so those are the little types of things that I think have, have helped my students and, and me to better figure out what, what is missing. I find this uh, side of the food world, this conversation the most relevant and revelational. I, I really do. I just, I, I'm, I'm so in the moment, Becky. Uh, do, you find, <laughs> do you find that the uh, taste receptors of men versus women differ as a, as a whole, as a group, right? Do men find particular things better bitter than women do more acidic or on the sweeter side? We know from the wine world, by the way, that the, the uh, female population has a sweeter palate. Studies show. And that, that to me, remains to be seen, I think, scientifically, whether that's nature or nurture. Right. Uh, uh, as far as I remember, but I, I could be wrong there. But, but uh, what we do know from science is that the more women are super tasters or sensitive tasters than men. Um, and, you know, my hypothesis is that it, it probably has to do with uh, women, um, you know, of course, ha- uh, having babies and having to be more sensitized to bitter compounds uh, to not harm their growing babies. Yes, um, sure. So, 
So, uh, you know, my wife, April, is, is a wine expert. Uh, her being a, sensi- uh, being a sensitive taster actually makes her very good at her job uh, because she can pick out imbalances in wine very acutely. Um, mm. You know, she'll, she'll pick up a glass of wine, she'll take a sip, uh, and and uh, she'll she said wow there's there's a lot of volatile acidity there's the the tannins are too grippy and the da, da, da. and I take a sip of it and I'm like mmm red wine good yay long day good wine yay, yes tasty berry juice <laughs> yum or <laughs> like whatever like we she looks at me like I'm a total idiot and I'm just like I, I don't get how you're getting all that and for so long I doubted her I'm like I think you're just doing that sort of douchey wine speak like do you really get that like she's like no I really do she and really does. turns out like I feel like you know how some people have really great sense of smell and that you should pay attention to them like if, if, if there was going to be a fire like if they are reacting yes. you should run yes I feel like with food if she's having a reaction to something I should definitely not eat it before I let you go can you share your Italian salsa verde please I love this recipe because I think it hits every single note of everything I talk about in the book which is taking you through all those different elements of taste and flavor and it, this this dish this sauce is so good on so many things and I think it's because it it gives your entire palate and your nose and your memory if you've tasted those things like a big hug and everything's in pretty good balance so Mm. in the salsa verde you have you have parsley for the aromatic you have capers which represent several categories umami salt and acid you have raisins for a bit of sweetness you have olive oil for the fat you have um, some toasted almonds for the uh, aromatics and also fat on board for that. Um, you have sherry vinegar, which is both an aromatic and acid. And um, I think uh, chili flakes for some bite and heat. You can add uh, optional garlic also for that bite. To create balance, harmony, and deliciousness, you must read how to taste. This really is an incredible lesson for anyone who loves to cook or loves to eat. And you will feel ultimately confident about why and how various components of a dish are used to create all of that beautiful mmm that Becky Selengut talks about. It's a fabulous read just released from author Becky Selengut, S-E-L-E-N-G-U-T. You can learn more. Of course, the book is available on Amazon and on fine bookstores everywhere and uh, at BeckySellingut.com and on social at Becky Selengut. You can follow her culinary journey of how to taste. Becky, it was a pleasure to have you once again. Congratulations and kudos to you. Um, it's it's Thank a you, wonderful book. Thank you so much. As the delicious conversation continues, we have great minds on this show sharing culinary epiphanies, and you wouldn't want to miss a minute. Now, would you? Don't touch your dial. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, taking a quick break. We'll be right back.
Satisfying your cravings every weekend, Chef Jamie Gwen here. Okay, ladies, listen up. This is the follow-up to a two-part series with Jules Aaron, a holistic expert and cookbook author whom I find inspiring because she is committed to making the world more beautiful. And she does believe that your glow comes from the inside out. So in her new book release entitled Fresh and Pure, you'll learn how to create your own simple and natural beauty regimen and switch from commercial brands to natural beauty products. Doesn't that sound good? I know, wholesome recipes for your face and your body that you can formulate in your own kitchen. Jules Aaron is the best-selling author of Zen and Tonic and Vegan Cheese. She is a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner with a master's degree, and she's back to dish. Glad to have you again, Jules. Hi, Jamie. Hi so there. great to be back. No, thank you. Okay, first and foremost, this is um, of a two-part series, yours and mine here, but from your two-part book release. So we dished on neuro and glow last month and we're feeding our body to better our glow. Now we're actually formulating those topical uh, body and facial uh, products that we buy and spend so much money on, um, but very holistically at home. And the first thing in reading through your book that really surprised me is your love of oils. For so many of us, and I think this conversation is always brewing, there's a question as to whether you should add more oil to what might be an already oily skin. So just debunk some myths to start off. Um, so I like to think of it as um, um, from, from the really basic principle of chemistry, and that's like dissolved like. And so um, the best way to dissolve a solvent, such as oil, would be with another oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a, a somewhat of a, of a phenomenon going on with um, uh, oils becoming uh, the new beauty thing. Um, I've been using uh, oils on my skin for as long as I can remember, um, and I've never had an issue. So I can, I can speak from personal experience. Of this course. is not just a recent um, um, a development or an adjustment in my uh, beauty routine. I've sure. used it for as long as I know. And um, it just seems like uh, just using the right oils can cleanse your, uh, your pores of dirt and of bacteria uh, a lot more gently and effectively than uh, you would by using a moisturizer. Or, uh, I'm sorry, not a moisturizer, but a cleanser mm-hmm. that uh, might include Uh, more ingredients than you really need. Right. I'm always very conscious of looking for alcohol listed on an ingredient label, and it's everywhere. And you make facial skincare and natural makeup and body care and hair care that are all really naturally formulated. You're making them yourself. Let's talk about skin types to, to start out. If you have oily skin... There are certain ingredients that are better versus dry skin or normal combination skin. Yes. So, I mean, for, for oily skin, I would choose um, um, an oil with a higher percentage of linoleic acid, um, and that helps uh, to reduce blemishes by protecting your, your, your skin surface. Hmm. Um, so oils such as safflower, evening primrose, sunflower, grapeseed, um, are all um, wonderful oils to actually regulate the natural oil production of our skin. Okay. Um, for somebody with drier skin, um, I would choose uh, oils uh, that are richer in fatty acids and polyphenols. 
Um, and those are much more nourishing, and they also help fight aging. Um, so things um, really um, thicker oils, um, richer oils, such as macadamia oil or wheat germ or even avocado, mm-hmm. um, are all wonderful um, choices. Um, and then for, for normal um, uh, or combination skins, um, I would choose a, an oil with a percentage uh, ratio closer to about 15% oleic, um, that, and that will um, balance out uh, the combination um, skin types um, without actually um, bringing it too, too much out of the, the, the natural spectrum. Sure. Um, so things like almond oil or sesame or even argan oil are wonderful choices. And I love that you are about the experience. You are a breath of fresh air with a passion for food and cooking and this wonderful collaboration of insight into holistic uh, and and passion for beauty products and bettering oneself inside and out. And so I congratulate you. The two new books are really wonderful. Uh, released from Jules Aaron, the new books Fresh and Pure and Nourish and Glow are both available now. And with natural oils and fruits and herbs, you will Find recipes to care for your body and your face and your hair in the new book release entitled Fresh and Pure. The book is available everywhere. You can learn more at Jules Aaron, J-U-L-E-S-A-R-O-N.com and follow her like I do at Jules Aaron as well. And Jules, you're welcome back here anytime. So the next time you have insight into something from our kitchen pantry, you call me, okay? (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jamie. It's always a pleasure. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of Juicy Conversation. And you can always find me serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com until next weekend. But don't go yet. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of fabulous food for this holiday weekend. And rather fitting, if I may say myself, because if you're like me, you have a constant craving for kettle corn and you're about to fire up your barbecue. What do the two have in common? Well, we all know that the grill can cook up a delicious steak or hamburger, but did you know that you can also use your barbecue to pop popcorn? Yes, in fact, all popcorn kernels really need is an adequate source of heat for them to pop into a delicious snack. So I make grilled kettle corn. It's easy. You place some vegetable oil, popcorn kernels, sugar, and salt in a disposable pie pan, and you toss it all to coat. And then you cover the pan loosely with heavy-duty aluminum foil. You make a dome shape on top, you know, like those Jiffy Pops we used to use as kids. Then you set the pie pan on the grill at medium-high heat, and you wait until the popcorn starts to pop. And you use tongs to shake the pan from side to side. And once the kernels stop popping, you immediately transfer them to a bowl so that the bottom kernels don't burn. And there you have it, grilled kettle corn. So cool, right? I will post my recipe on social, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, and I will meet you here next weekend for lots more delicious conversation. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.